Welcome to The New Next, a podcast that addresses current events and how they will impact the future. I think we should just start with, it seems like they have now finished the final version of the fiscal year 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. And... When I was reading through it, I won't lie, I didn't know what specifically I should be looking for in this. I thought maybe you can help break it down for me and all those listeners out there that have yet to figure it out themselves. The lovely thing that you have to enjoy and I enjoy all the time is I love to read a lot of complicated bills and policy information and legal filings, a lot of stuff that you probably think is annoying, but the devil is in the details, so to speak. And I really try to understand how our spending government wise is indicating broader of our like strategy geopolitically. So the national defense authorization is what Congress goes through in their appropriation process each year for our defense and military spending this year. With everything going on, all the spending that we've done so far, we have a top line budget of $858 million. So okay. increased spending, top line on on spending. So this is above... What our normal so, year to year is? This is $45 billion above what Biden requested. And really? Yeah. So a lot of people said that was a, kind of an anemic request because it was below inflation but so they they did that the bill has basically a lot of provisions allocating money towards what they deem as military readiness so essentially moving out old equipment and buying new stuff with ukraine like we've us and a lot of so basically with Ukraine, right, Ukraine is theoretically loaning our money and agree, or loaning our weapons, agreeing us to pay back on at a later date. My expect, expectation is that debt is going to be essentially forgiven or they're going to go bankrupt and do some re- restructuring or something. But right. So it's like the arrangement that the Pentagon and has with our domestic like city police forces and stuff where they loan out basically military equipment and there's a fee associated with it. Okay. So we've already moved out a lot of like old ammo, old rockets that aren't necessarily top of the line. And we're Mm -hmm. already replacing a lot of that stuff. But this bill also um, basically keeps some plans going that they're planning programs that they're planning and basically shifting out of the F-22 fighter. They're also procuring 11 initial Navy ships and restoring funding for a, a sea launch nuclear cruise missile, essentially investing in seaborne naval nuclear capabilities and also 
naval ready readiness capabilities. The okay. United States has the best destroyer fleet on the earth. We have the best naval fleet. China has more ships, but we're really allocating spend on, I would say war readiness stuff. If I was going to basically get ready to potentially enter some sort of military conflict, this is what I would be looking at. Yeah, there's a bunch of, I would say more political elements of this, like diversity, equity, inclusion, removal stuff. The vaccine mandate was lifted. There's some other stuff, no draft for women. They were talking about instituting a draft for women hmm. at one point under this bill. There's a lot of funding in this too, for essentially things that will benefit Taiwan, both in our strategic relationship, military relationship with them, but also I think some money is eventually going to go directly, I would say, maybe not directly, but like they're doing with Ukraine, where the U.S. is spending money training their troops. There's also increased accountability for audits associated with Ukraine, and there's some other stuff. But watered-down bans on Chinese technology is one of the things that was a negative on this bill, too. There was a lot of people that had wanted to put in strict strict language related to tech, military technology. Like in the last 20 years, we've built a lot of components in China and the, our company contractors, and they've acquired that technology through nefarious means. That was watered down and that was un unfortunate, but it also, they have... I would say th they really pumped up their grant funding system. It was like extra 360 million for NGOs. And these are NGOs really related to DHS and their mission. So well, it's me what an NGO is a, a national or non-governmental organization. Okay. So this is they're typically, they receive government funding from governments, institutions, stuff like the UN and stuff, NGOs typically okay. do. Gotcha. But it looks like there's a lot of funding or increased funding to going through military privatization in this too. So it's very interesting. I think this is based on all that kind of rhetoric that you hear in the news from our political people, this is a reasonable bill for it. It appears to me that they're getting ready to get into some action though, especially with the naval spending. I think, I think the government, the Navy asked for six or eight ships. They got 11 and they may get up to 18 when we get through this whole process. So they're throwing more money at in action military forces than I expected. And I think the military expected themselves. So it's, these are interesting. I think you learn more by diving into this and really seeing what both parties agree on and the strategy for our geopolitical strategy going forward, what Congress sees, what our kind of military figures are right. looking at too. So who's put this together? Is this the president or is this Congress? It's 
the it's basically a collaborative. I would I mean, say. So, so this says like this is the final draft, or hopefully the final draft. Who's the one that put the final part together? Was it was that the collaboration, or was it a a group? So they Congress basically usually issues bills, and that's more of a gray line these days. It seems like senators, especially when you have a split Senate, have been more involved in kind of shaping those bills before they get there. Okay. Typically how it goes is a representative in the House introduces the bill. It goes up to the Senate after it's voted or passes committee and stuff like that. There's a lot of negotiations behind the scenes. It gets carved up. Sometimes bills are come from lobbyists in the beginning, and then you have lobbyists on either sides working in back rooms, trying to see what works. And you have, obviously, the president for the Perry budget has a huge input in that because he's going to the one that's going to sign or not sign the bill into law. I think with the military stuff, since it's such a a robust system. There's so many different people and so the different entities ask for what they want. And then it gets built up to this whole thing. They are like, we don't need this. We need that. I want this because, or we want this because this person, we want to vote on this other bill and there's a right. shipyard in their home state. So like with the Naval stuff, Annapolis around Maryland and Virginia, those are areas where all, most of our ships are built in the U.S. And that's going to be places where those jobs are going to be uh, created building these naval ships. Gotcha. <laughs> There's a lot of different groups that can potentially benefit from this that are sharing their blood. And I guess one of the reasons why I ask is because if this final draft was mostly coming from the White House as opposed to the Senate or the House reps, then I would be like, okay, so this is the Biden that I honestly thought was going to be in office. <laughs> because especially during, before Obama, he was definitely more of a moderate leaning or at that time, right leaning politician. But if this is coming from the Senate and the yeah. reps, then this shows that it's not necessarily him, that he's still trying to push the other agenda kind of stuff. So that's what that, that that's what I was looking at on that yeah, specific I felt, thing. I felt Obama really <laughs> wasn't trying to go all over the world and kill a yeah. bunch of people. And I think Biden Biden spearheaded a lot of the foreign policy stuff. And it, in my personal opinion, I think Obama had a lot smarter, intelligent, thoughtful people that knew what they were doing and actually had a kind of a transparent ideology. He knew where they're coming from right. around him. It, he was inexperienced, but I think our foreign policy would have been a lot stronger had he had more of a dominant. Yeah. Um, on that. But it, again, I was looking at it from, from the perspective of if Biden was the one pushing for these specific changes, that might be him signaling that he's going to try to run more moderate campaign for 2024. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, I wasn't looking at it necessarily directly on what the actual policies were as so much as who is the one coming up with it. 
Yeah. Was it coming more? Is this coming more from the Senate or from the reps, though? I don't know. So, like, all this happens in the background. And then you also have lobbyists from Lockheed Martin, Boeing, <laughs> basically all the military contractors, the ship companies that are very involved in this. And uh, they're, that's, Lobbyism, lobbyists sound bad, but they have a totally useful purpose. It's like a huge, hugely important part. There's just really, granted, there's a lot of nefarious stuff that happens with that too. Uh, our elected officials don't have time to come up with everything from scratch. If you're going to have like a, a lobby group or something, at least come with a framework of a bill. And oh, yeah, Grant, yeah. Grant, and they're advocating for their position, but it's just, it's a necessary evil, I would say. And I think that's part of the rub is that it's because we hear about specifically the negative lobbies, specifically a tobacco lobby throughout many decades of history. And then finally enough people in Congress saying, no, let's actually look into this and that's like the one that we use as an example because it was such an overpowering lobby, but there's other lobbies like that as well. It's, mm -hmm. I think that's the scary part is because now it's not the vote of the American people. It's the vote of the American lobbies. And then which yeah, you know, like Mitt Romney will say something along the lines of corporations are people too, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I don't think it's, I don't have a problem with. It's a rough system. Of, yeah, yeah. I mean, but well, it kind of works. <laughs> here's the rub. The staff of each congressperson, of the president, of the goal of the staff is honestly, they're supposed to be looking up information. And they're the ones supposed to be confirming all this stuff, not the congressperson themselves. They're supposed to hire good people <laughs> who do that. Yeah. But instead, they're hiring staff to get reelected. Or, or nepotism. One of your donors, um, kids. But that's still the same thing. Your staff is helping them get reelected. Yeah, that's I mean, true. Here's the really sad thing for all the people in the House of Reps. They just finished their campaign season about two months ago. And as soon as they <laughs> get re-sworn in or sworn in in about a month, they are going to start their process of getting yeah. reelected again. And I know, and this I do think is related somewhat to the military spending bill because the amount of money they can spend on postage as long as they're in office for re-election and stuff. It, that's why I'm curious. Cause if it was the house bringing this up, final changes, I guess the new house hasn't got installed yet. So that's, that makes this, that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable with this because of who's in the Senate right now and who's in the house right now. This isn't necessarily where we're having on two or next month when the house is going to be most the house of representatives will be mostly run by it'll be a majority republican at that point out of all the debates that you have in washington i think military is really one of the things that both parties agree on there's very oh, yeah. little dissent even aoc and that crew and on the other side i would say the true libertarians and stuff minus like Rand paul and stuff most of them are just rubber stamping this stuff. They yeah. may have the ideology, but this is the one thing that I think both parties recognize the need for, but also aren't going to spend 
the time reforming something that is a convoluted and administrated thing that people oh, yeah. don't really care about. And part of the, or the realization of this is also America, we can say a lot of people talk about it still being the land of freedom and all this different stuff. And I'm not saying it isn't, but the thing that we identify with, the reason why we consider ourselves a country is because we had George Washington and his kick butt army. That's what we think of. We think about that. We weren't down with the oppressive government and yeah. we're going to fight. And that's been the mark of all the things. And I'm, I, and I'm going to be very careful when I say this, because I don't mind this getting recorded, but the most interesting thing about the civil war to me right now is that we still think of Robert E. Lee generally as this great strategic military mind. And this has been said multiple times. So last year when I was reading all the different books on the presidents and stuff, something that got brought up in multiple books because you have multiple presidents that came out of the civil war as well about had Robert E. Lee been on the union side instead of on the Confederate side, yeah. that the war would have probably ended a lot earlier. And whether that's true or not, that's for the military strategist <laughs> and stuff. But that's what we think of. We think about how to win wars. And I think that's not an uncommon view of the Civil War. We do think about slavery. We think about the stuff like that. But we think more about the war being battles and how yeah. we spent so much time on it. We celebrate World War II because we were the ones in the driver's seat kicking butt. Or at least that's the, how we talk about it. World War One, we gloss over it a lot. We talk about the foundations of World War One mostly because those are the same foundations for World War Two. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't really talk about America's role in World War One because we didn't have nearly as much. It didn't feel like we had as much involvement. And that's why even like the police actions and stuff that have happened since World War Two. We talk about in the way that we kick butt. Yeah, so, it's really a romantic ideal. Yeah. Even right now, and you can see what I'm wearing. I don't know if this is videoed right now for the, if this is going on YouTube video, which it is fine. But I'm wearing my Captain America hoodie. <laughs> and even though I'm identifying more of what the spirit of Captain America is, as opposed to America itself, I'm still wearing a military-esque garb showing who I identify with philosophically. Yeah. So I don't, I, I definitely take the irony or the <laughs> juxtaposition of what I'm saying. And the reason why I say that is because I think some of you remember that I generally come across as a nonviolent resistor. I'm not necessarily for huh. war, even though I understand that war, we live in a world where war is probably going to take place more times than not. If you would like to learn more about the New Next Podcast, find us at thenewnextpodcast.com, where you can suggest a topic you would like for us to cover. If you enjoyed what you heard, share the podcast, tell a friend about it, or rate us with five stars. 